Hey y'all, it's been a minute. Well, um, I'm back, it's Itzel, and today I'm going to be discussing Israel and Palestine. I know it's been a second since I've hopped on a podcast, and I know my last one was on affirmative action, but you know, as I've been discussing with some of my peers, and just those around me and seeing what's been going on around so- on social media, I felt it's very, or I feel it's very important to discuss what's happening in Palestine and Israel and historically what has been going on. So to begin, or before we delve into some heavier concepts, I think it's important that we familiarize ourselves with some terms that we're going to be hearing um, and just some broad topics that could have been misconstrued in the past or that you may just not just be familiar with. So our first term is settler colonialism. I've thrown that word, I've thrown that word a lot. Like I've thrown it around a lot in history and ethnic studies or really just anywhere. We're not anywhere necessarily, but in the sociological context, it's a term I use quite a bit. But what settler, colonial, what settler colonialism really is, it's, um, well, the goal of it is the removal and erasure of indigenous peoples or aka the people living there before in order to take use of the land by settlers, usually to exploit it for either economic gain or for their own gain, usually economic, or really to just kind of just settle there and take everything. And our second term is anti-Semitism. I think this is a term that has been, like, it's been used against a lot of pro-Palestinian protesters. And I'm not disregarding any sort of um, actual violence that has occurred against Jewish people because I do want to preface this podcast by saying I do not condone any hate or any um, anti-Semitism. I do want to preface that. But I think it's important that we establish what it means so that when we delve into some heavier concepts later or into some more in-depth concepts that we don't confuse some things because I know some confusing terminology has been used and there are projects such as a canary mission that exist to um, deface and discredit Palestinian movements because they are labeled anti-Semitic because they renounce the Israeli government. But what anti-Semitism is, it's prejudiced against Jewish people and it can manifest in either like outward violence, which is I think what we're most familiar with, such as the Holocaust, or really it's perpetuated through a lot of acts, even in like writing and art. For example, like when we read The Great Gatsby in my AP English Lang class, I was like astonished by the amount that F. Scott Fitzgerald use like the amount of anti-semitism the caricature of the mysterious thieving scheming man that Gatsby was associating with or even in my um, AP United States history class when we were reviewing propaganda I didn't realize how prevalent it was until we really went in and delved into the nuances and what everything really meant and I guess I don't I know uh, I still would consider this on like the border or really just I guess America doing some questionable things or just downright things that are bad but I mean morally not correct but in 1939 the u.s uh ms st louis turned away a ship that was full of jewish refugees this was in 1939 um this this was world war ii (laughs) so that ship actually bounced between cuba and the u.s and the u.s decided to turn it down and other than that i guess more currently in more contemporary society stereotypes are constantly perpetuated like i talked about earlier in the great gatsby but i guess that was still like a good amount of time but the most contemporary example i think of or that i use a lot is harry potter um i think the the most clear exemplification or demonstration is in the goblins like their their caricature what they look like their noses their facial features how just how they're described and demonstrated is is very reminiscent of jewish caricatures or anti-semitic sorry anti-semitic caricatures and our next term a semite or semi i'm sorry i think i'm saying that wrong but 
A Semite um, is any member of the peoples who speak or have spoken a Semitic language, including particularly the Jews and Arabs. So um, a Semite is not just a Jewish person. It, in person, it encompasses both the Jews and the Arabs. And Zionism. So Zionism, I feel like, is yet again another term that is heavily misconstrued, hence why I'm going over it now. And Zionism was first proposed by Theodore Herzl. I think also I'm saying his name wrong. But his belief was that Judaism, Judaism, sorry, is a nationality that warrants a homeland. And the rise of anti-Semitism and violence across Europe in the early mid 19th, wait, the, sorry, the 20th century, um, led to the idea of a theocratic ethnostate, aka resorting to his, like, Herzl's central dogma of that the Jewish problem required the solution of a Jewish state. And this establishment of the state led to a hierarchy in Israel, and even Jewish people of color who are Jewish in Israel are still affected by this hierarchy. Hence, when people say the Israeli apartheid, they are not just referring to, well, they are referring to the Palestinians as well, but they are referring to the hierarchy that has been created by Zionism. And I would also like to um, preface or just make clear that being anti-Zionist does not mean that you are um, anti-Semitic. Those two are not the same. You can renounce the actions of the Israeli government. <laughs> I mean, you can renounce like their, you know, their actions over the past and just their historical choices. But that does not mean you are anti-Semitic. Like, that, that they are not synonymous. So, yeah, just wanted to get those terms out of the way. So now I'm going to trace into the history of Israel and Palestine. And this dates all the way back to, well, where I'm going to start is World War One. World War One kind of, it broke apart the Ottoman Empire. Well, it didn't kind of. It did. It broke apart the Ottoman Empire. The, the Ottoman Empire encompassed a lot of the current Middle East. And when it dissipated after World War One. The League of Nations let Britain, um, oh, Britain, they, yeah, they let Britain conquer the foreign, sorry, the former Ottoman Empire land, and they, they really just kind of annexed a lot. It was the Mandate of Palestine, and in it also required the Balfour Declaration. Sorry, I don't think I'm correct. I'm correctly pronouncing that either. And remember, this is all before World War II. This is still a very post-World War One, literally like 1917-1918 era. And the Balfour Declaration was a like declared a national home for Jewish people, despite it. Oh yeah, in Israel, despite the people and the Palestinians who were already living there, this was an already occupied land. And the boundaries of this like Jewish home was they were not clear, and there was like one clear th like rule or I guess distinction that Jewish people could not occupy all of Palestine. But um, that it. That did not necessarily unfold, or that's not how it is now. But um, the UK mandate for Palestine was withdrawn in the 1940s, and that was also when a a very large um, Zionist movement was kicked off. And in 1948, there was the Arab-Israeli War, which um, really consisted of the Nakba. Sorry, I think I'm, I may be pronouncing that wrong, but it displaced 700,000 Palestinians so that um, Jewish people could take their land and occupy their spaces. And then in, a year later, in 1949, the Israeli government announced that they could that they can't make Jerusalem an international city, which was part of some of the humanitarian um, humanitarian propositions made forth by the UN. Um, and then after they displaced all those people, and after they could not, you know, make Jerusalem an international city. 
the Israeli government declared Jerusalem the capital just like a few months later in 1950. And um, there were a few things that happened between 1950 and the next like main event I'm going to talk about, which was the West Bank seizure in 1968. So... Prefacing Nakba, there was the 1947 UN consensus that Jerusalem would be the international city with like in an enclave, hence the like Israel's opposition to that. Like they, they couldn't do like they couldn't um, establish it as an international city. The future government of Palestine, it was a plan of partition, the two state solution that um, I know some of you might have heard or just be familiar with or just, you know, probably heard it around. And that was kind of the beginning or that was a lot of the beginning. And then. Um, in 1956, that was the Suez Crisis. This kind of, I feel like, cleared up a lot of relations. Not cleared up, but this was a big way for the U.S. to meddle. I'm sorry, to be involved in foreign affairs, specifically with Israel. And what occurred was that Egypt nationalized and they wanted control of the canal. But this canal was connected to Europe, which, you know, houses the, like, the biggest Western powers. Or, and at the time, the Cold War was also, like, starting to brew and it was, no, it was already raging. But, um, oh yeah, NATO was fun. The, the Warsaw Pact was founded that year. But anyways, um, Egypt nationalized and people were, they were not happy about it. Like, the U.S. saw this as an opportunity for a proxy war because the U.S. had not been on Israel's side initially. But they saw this as an opportunity as, like, for a proxy war and to leverage this later in foreign politics. So then after the 1956 Suez Crisis was the Six-Day War in, uh, six day war in 1967. The Six-Day War consisted of Israel versus Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, and the IDF, or the Israeli Defense Forces, took Jerusalem, or they seized Jerusalem, and they adopted the Protection of the Holy Places Law, which included um, articles such as, like, the No Desecration of Holy Places, and Palestinians actually appealed this and stated their grievances that they already have, considering, you know, over 700,000 of them had already been displaced by the Nakba almost 20 years prior. And the Palestinians' grievances included that, like, they detailed that the Christian and Muslim holy places had already been desecrated, and they actually protested, like, the the, the force, forceful relocation, or forceful, sorry, forceful displacement, because there was, like, they, sorry, Israeli um, settlements bulldozed 135 houses that were originally, like, settled there from the 14th century. The 14th century, that, that is so incredibly old. And there was also a um, an explosion that killed 650 people in a predominantly Muslim area. And they think these Palestinian grievances included that Israel had evicted about 3,000 3, Arab residents from the Jewish quarter on very short notice and had also taken and occupied a girls' school. And Israel was imposing, like, their own laws on the Palestinians, along with taking all of their, with seizing, you know, their belongings, their land. And it was a violation of international law. And this was just in 1967. So, a year later, in 1968, there was the West Bank seizure. And by 1968, they had um, seized about 3,000 dunums. I, I'm sorry, I don't think I'm saying that correctly, but one dunum is approximately, like, a thousand square meters, which equates to about two sorry, 0.247 anchor acres. And so the 3,000 dunums translates to about 741 acres of land that were taken from Palestinians. And it had been reported that by like the end or towards the end of 1967, that Israeli authorities, like they expanded 
aka conquered and forcefully displaced uh, many Palestinians. Many, many they had displaced many Palestinians to expand quote unquote the boundaries of Jerusalem by adding seventy thousand dunums. And as I had claimed, like sorry, as I had stated earlier, the conversion that would be seventeen thousand two hundred ninety acres of land from the West Bank. This was just West Bank. This does not include Jerusalem or really any other part. This is just the West Bank. And at this point, 86% um, of the land that was before for Palestinians had now been reduced to just about 13%. Um, I mean, it was just, oh my God, they just forcibly taken all of their land and that little land left that 13.5% translated to about 9,500 dunums. I'm sorry, I, I, I really don't think I'm saying that correctly, but the point still stands that they seized a lot. And uh, by the definition that we established earlier earlier of settler, settler colonialism, I do think this fits. Um, now, moving on to East Jerusalem, there's more. In January 1968, about a thousand acres in like the Sheikha Jariah. I'm sorry, I really don't think I'm saying that correctly either. But mostly in the Sheikha Jariah quarter, the first Jewish settlements were built. And this incurred about 20,000 residents total in this area. And then in August 1970, 3,500 acres more were incurred for more Jewish settlements, which had a population total of about 101,000. So this is in East Jerusalem. And then in March 1980, there were about 1,100 acres for the construction of the Pigzat Ze'ev. I'm sorry, I don't think I'm saying that correctly either, but it's still a displacement of their land. And they had a projected population in that area of about 50,000 by the end of 1995, but that was just a projection. And then fast forwarding to April 1991, 470 acres of the construction of planned settlement were like established. And then by April 1992, 500 more of those acres, acre, acres were put into motion as well. And that's about 2,100 apartments, 2,100. And then in total combined with April 1991, that's about like 11,000, a little over 11,000 more apartments in Palestinian land that was forcefully taken. They, it was not given up. It was forcefully annexed. At this point, about 21,000 Palestinian families were just about homeless and they had to live in tents hovels ho hovels i'm assuming that's like similar to a caravan and palestinians who were building without a permit they were they ran the risk of having their houses demolished and at this point they were displaced peoples like displaced people hence you know they they were they they were quite literally displaced i'm not sure if you guys have heard of the kurds but they were also displaced peoples they have been virtually like done wrong by every western power but i think that's a, that analogy just about fits and moving on to the in Tifada, such which was the censorship, um, it, the the Infatada detailed the oppression, which included the censorship of Arab language publications, the closing of newspapers and educational cultural institutions based in East Jerusalem, and then their representatives were arrested. And from a sociological standpoint, this is textbook oppression. You know, this is removing. The, this is literally cultural. This is gen. This is quite literally cultural genocide. If you're removing culture, you're removing their educational means. That is just, that is insane for me to think about, especially how long this is what been going on as well, like up until, even still today, whereas today it's, it's, it's a lot of violence as well. I know recently or within the past three years, we've seen an uptick in violent protests. So I would like you to channel that in 
and kind of remember what those images and like that how vivid they were and how graphic they were and remember that this is being inflicted that this was being is and was being inflicted on the Palestinian people and in 1981 the specific instance i'm talking about is that there was an armed individual who killed three muslim guards and began and began firing at the crowd killing nine wounding about 30 about sorry wounding about 40 and in america's climate I mean, I'm not going to deny we, we do live in a climate where there are a lot of shootings that we hear about. I mean, God, there was that one recently that happened in Maine. God, I, I'm sorry. I forgot how many people died. And I'm none of us forget what happened in Uvalde or to really what happened to any of those kids or what happened to um, Sandy Hook. We we keep those. We say never forget to those. And we say, you know, to never do those again. We hold them sacred in our hearts to the, the emotion. So remembering the damage and remembering the impact it had on us let's think about how this these groups of palestinians have well these palestinians have been um been undergoing this oppression for so long and the magnitude of restrictions they've been put under and the violence that i was talking about earlier that i was mentioning did not stop in january 1988 there was an israeli policeman who began firing tear gas and he was confronting, or sorry, the policeman was confronting Palestinian protesters, and this um, altercation injured about 70, and at least 70. And yet again, connecting back to America, when we think about police violence, I think we, like, we very much think about it in a U.S. standpoint. You know, we don't, our, our lens of police brutality, or at least I think for a lot of people, only is restricted to the United States. We don't think about other countries and how they've also perpetuated or been, I guess, guilty of the same offenses. So when we think about that type of police violence, let's channel that in and remember what it, you know, what it really is and to put yourself into, to put it in, sorry, to put the violence into perspective. And it did, yet again, like I reiterated earlier, like I reiterated earlier, it did not stop. In October 1990, efforts by the Temple Mount Faithful, an extremist um, Jewish group, they had an effort to lay a symbolic cornerstone um, for the temple and it led to a confrontation with Muslim worshippers. And in this altercation, 20, Palis 20 Palestinians were killed and more than 150 were wounded by the, by the um, Israeli security forces and more than 20 Israeli civilians and police were also wounded. And clashes between Muslim worshippers and Jewish groups seeking to assert, you know, their Jewish rights, um, they have taken place on, like, they've, they've occurred various times and it's not an isolated occurrence i'm sure you've assumed by now yet again happening so later in 1996 the government's decision or sorry the israeli government's decision to open a second entrance to the archaeological tunnel in the muslim quarter it caused demonstrations not only in in sorry in jerusalem but across the west bank and gaza which were followed by the violent clashes and violent protests and altercations that resulted in the deaths of 62 palestinians and several policemen, Israeli soldiers, and wounding of hundreds. At the Haram al-Sharif, three Palestinians were killed and 50 were wounded. Another instance of violence would include the, um, the instance in August 1969 at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this was, this included, I guess, arson? Like, they, they arsoned, sorry, I don't, is, how do you use arson in this sentence? But they, um... They essentially lit this mosque on fire, which destroyed it. And this specific temple, which was a holy place, was 800 years old. 
hundred years. Eight zero zero, like eight times ten squared. And this was also a violation of Israel's own assertion earlier that, you know, there could be no desecration of holy um, holy places. And this is also another example about how oppressive powers only enforce rules for themselves because when they set the rule, they can violate it. Or people who align with them are allowed to freely kind of violate their own laws or do whatever. But then the second another group does it, if it's or the second it's inflicted upon another group, then it doesn't matter anymore. And um, there have been various other attempts to blow up other mosques and other religious sites. And these are hate crimes. And hate crimes, I'm like connecting back to the very Eurocentric perspective of an American. I feel like it's very restricted to hate these, you know, crimes or these are very, very like in the U.S. But then remember to expand our perspective, to think about how people of of the world or just anybody in general any minority has experienced this type of oppression before and palestinians did not stop voicing their you know their concerns and their grievances um and one of like the big ones or the main ones was that palestinians were not able or they were like it was obstructed to enter jerusalem to pray because jerusalem was the holy land that's why it's been so contested um it's a site of what's it called just like the intersection of christianity islam and judaism so that's why that i think it's the big source of conflict but a lot of it is from uh zionism as well fast forward to 1993 that's this is when the oslo accords were signed and the oslo accords um were between like there was a peace formation between israel and the plo and the plo was the Palestinian Liberation Organization and they served as a representative representative for all Palestinians and they came to the consensus that the PLO would renounce terrorism and recognize Israel's right to exist in peace. Emphasis on the in peace part because I, I, I don't think that <laughs> that um, necessarily happened. But going back to the like taking and annexing other people's land at this point Palestinians were left with like 13, 14% of their land and of their own, you know, where they had been living and the 7 million Palestinians that were living before were reduced to that little land. But, but I guess about what, like seven plus five, I can't do math, but 12 years later in 2005, that is when Israel withdrew its forces from Gaza and it, from the title, it appears as though, you know, Israel left everything alone. It's okay. That is not farther from the case. Um, Israel still, like, they imposed a lot of sanctions, which controlled every aspect of, of Palestinian lives. Lives, And, you know, Israel had access, well, not access, they controlled their water, their electricity, um, etc., despite leaving the area. Um, so that's why, I think that's, okay, that's, a, that's also going to go into, like, debunking uh, misconceptions later but i'll just debunk it now this this particular one i'll debunk now it's a very large misconception that i've heard all across social media and i haven't heard it in person too much but like if the big thing is but how how can israel be um occupying if they uh w- withdrew their troops in 2005 <sighs> <sighs> because they withdrew their troops that doesn't mean that the sanctions don't exist because they do 
And whatever little euphemism you want to put on there does not remove the reality that these Palestinians are living under oppression and rubble right now. Um, and the carpet bombing did not stop. Uh, I will define carpet bombing later, but that it did not stop at all. The air raids. Nope. They did not stop. So to kind of pull this together and to make it a little bit more relatable or to put into perspective what was occurring here or what is occurring right now as I speak um, I'm going to kind of connect it to a concept in American history I think a lot of us are familiar with, or at least if you're not, I'm about to kind of divulge a little bit. So in 1832, that's when Andrew Jackson, he um, imposed the, the Trail of Tears. It was not explicitly like he did not say this is the Trail of Tears, but it was basically displacing. Displacing! Hmm. I wonder where we've heard that term come from earlier. But it like involved, God, Christ, like thousands of indigenous people to be forcefully annexed and removed from their land. And there, of course, there there were a lot of casualties as well. And to kind of connect this to Israel and Palestine, think about it this way. The Palestinians were in this context, they were indigenous to that land. And then Israel, uh, Zionists, not Israel, (laughs) Zionists come over and they take that and they forcefully displace everyone. That sounds familiar when you think about it in American history. It's a concept that's been repeated over and over and over again and perpetuated through colonialism, imperialism, and really just concepts of expansion because most of the time expansion is exact, is synonymous with imperialism and expanding economic interests. I mean, I think taking the 1956 Suez crisis is a perfect example because the U.S., like I stated earlier, was not friendly with Israel at the time. Um... And what's it called? The U.S., the Soviets and the U.S. actually told Israel to put the troops like to like they told them to back out and to pull out. But then, well, it became a proxy war because Warsaw Pact had been founded in 1956 and then NATO had been founded in 1949. So tensions were brewing with the Cold War already and Western powers. They do like to um, use other countries to fight their wars or to meddle their own conflicts out. But anyways... Um, I just would like, I just wanted to compare those two very morbid events, the Trail of Tears and the Palestinian Displacement and Genocide that's occurring right now. I just wanted to compare this to put it into perspective so we have a better grasp on what's actually happening with something that we're much more familiar with, because I do understand that right now this is a very confusing time, I think, for people who are not um, educated on the history to make either an informed decision or to support. Um, Palestine and I just think comparing it to the Trail of Tears is very it's much more tangible it's something that we've been exposed to before no matter how the what's it called the effects have been watered down now like there are still you know a lot of people who deny oppression and other things like that but I do still think it's like a relevant concept to be compared to (sighs) so now that that kind of little section has been concluded I'm going to move on to today like the events that are going on today and I kind of recapped the history gave like a good like a summary for like what like 20 minutes but now this is today and i think we've all heard of hamas i have uh, heard it way too many times of how can you support hamas oh my god if you if you cared well, well, why why don't you care hamas huh like that's all i've heard like all i've seen across my twitter i've seen across my you know my tiktok my instagram my social media um and hamas actually started in 1987 and they stemmed from the islamic resistance movement 
And on December 8th, 1987, a motor accident in the Gaza Strip involving an Israeli truck and small vehicles were transporting Palestinian workers, and several of them were killed. And this triggered the riots that spread and evolved into what became known as the Intifada, which is which I also mentioned earlier, which included, you know, the oppression of um, is like Arabic books and culture. And this actually this like specific event reminds me of the Rodney King riots and what happened across LA with East LA riots and how um one instance of violence is all it takes to recatalyze a movement that's been brewing for a long time because as I I think I've conveyed pretty pretty clearly Palestinians are not silent in this they were not you know complacent with this not well of course they weren't complacent but they were not content there you go they were not content with this situation the entire time um, and having that resistance, I think, is important to acknowledge that this did not come out of nowhere. This violence that we're seeing now is not out of the blue. It was provoked. It was not simply just um, Palestinians, you know, doing it, I guess, for the fun of it or, you know, not for the fun of it, but not doing they were not doing it unprovoked. There was a reason behind it. And now I'm going to be debunking some claims. <laughs> Earlier, I debunked the um israel pulled out of gaza in 2005 claim but then i'm also going to debunk the the human shields it was not true there was a reporter that was in palestine and they reported that they saw no usage of hamas like they saw them they they did not witness hamas using people as human shields so debunked the second one oh god i, I saw this so many times it was the 40 beheaded babies narrative that did not happen. That that in by no means happened. Um, just, just what? Huh? <laughs> that that one kind of didn't make sense to me when I first saw it. I was I immediately questioned it. I was like, what? Okay. And oh yeah, at this point, when the hostages taken by Hamas were released, the Israeli content, you know, like the Israeli media was blocking the the kidnappees the victims like their testimony you know because they were talking about there was oh yeah there was a clip that had gone viral of the older jewish women who were hugging the um people from hamas because of like the way they were treated as refugees and that was being blocked that is censorship and as i mentioned earlier under the infatata it's man i need to learn pronunciation but under the in intifada how that censorship was also very prevalent and how censorship is still prevalent today and i think that's important to recognize because kind of sidelining, when we um, look at society, we don't often say that there are like very blatant forms of oppression, or at least many people don't. And that is part of being complacent in it. And yet again, it's not something that's widely advocated for. There, not everyone's like, oh my God, this is happening. This is oppression. But then you need to kind of look deeper and look at the inner nuances and subtleties. Like, ugh, I forgot who's, it was it Angela Davis. It was a one of my favorite, like, um, quotes was that a government will never say that they're outwardly fascist that they'll just renounce everything that is anti-fascist and not on the same scale but i feel like it's very similar like that sentiment remains that they will never state what they are they will just contradict everything that refutes them if that makes sense but um moving on to another claim that has been well, that will be debunked in a few seconds but it's that israel has not been bombing civilians or has not been targeting <sighs> I, I don't think this speaks for all Israelis. And I, I really, I genuinely don't. I don't believe in a generalization that large. But there were many, like, viral clips of um, people stating that they just wanted Palestine 
or the existing areas to be just flattened by carpet bombing. And what carpet bombing is, it's known as saturation bombing. And essentially it's like, it's designed to completely level an area, to completely eviscerate, decimate, just eradicate an entire area. That is the goal of, par of carpet bombing. Just to large area bombardment, that is what carpet bombing is. And Israel has been, well, I guess they've been conducting the air raids for a long time now. They've been targeting civilian homes, which, which is a human rights violation under the UN and reported by Amnesty.org. And the humanitarian, sorry, the humanitarian situation in Gaza right now is dire. Hospitals have been destroyed in the Palestinian death toll. As of right now, this, well, it's currently 9.41 p.m. on November 2nd, 2023. The Palestinian death toll has just cruised over 9,000. 9,000? Which, they were quite a bit of children. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the footage, or a lot of it's actually been censored by Instagram. Um, I haven't seen... Well, that's a lot. No, Twitter has still has a lot of censorship. Even on TikTok, when cr just creators are talking about just Israel and Palestine in general, it's like automatically shadow banned or it's automatically um, dinged for some offensive or it's dinged for anti-Semitism or something like that. Um, but what's it called? Yeah, that's that's not great, guys. Um, like just... <sighs> families, bloodlines, entire neighborhoods. Like, imagine, put yourself in the situation. Like, I can't, like, I live in a pretty big neighborhood, right? If my neighborhood was just bombed right now, th just nothing there. Where my family was, where my where my friends live, where, you know, where my schools, where my school is, where my school, my other schools were, just completely eradicated, gone. Put yourself in that situation and think about it, what it would feel like. Um, so... Yeah, just, you know, take that. Think about it. So th the, those graphic images may arise, but I do feel like it's important to acknowledge that and step out of our Western bubble of comfort. Because don't get me wrong, there are so various injustices that go on here in the U.S. And I'm very aware of those. But I also feel like we're very privileged. We are very privileged. I don't even feel like we are. We are very privileged compared to many of like the people of the world. Like, we watched a video in my AP macro econ class today, and it was about the making of a t-shirt. It was like Project Money or something like that. And one of the garment lady workers, her name was Jasmine, and um, she was talking about how she lived off a salary off of like $80 a month and how she was literally on the brink of poverty and that someone, oh, not so, sorry, not someone close to her, but she had witnessed the death toll of the, there was an incident in Bangladesh years ago it was I, I liked it it was no sorry not i like um it reminded me of the triangle shirtwaist fire in 1911 but in bangladesh and it killed all it like it collapsed a factory and the deaths of those people um but just to put yourself in that situation put your put the lens of privilege on by that i mean acknowledge that you have it and then you'll be able to dismantle it and remove it so yeah Moving on now, I'm going to start stating some companies that are, that sorry, that do support Israel. It's HP by HP at Hewlett Packard, Hewlett, 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 Hewlett Packard. It's the printer and computer company. Um, I'm going to be honest, I have an HP computer that is sitting right next to me. But I will admit when I bought the computer, I didn't know that. I was unaware. I've had this, this, um, not this computer, sorry, my printer. I, did, I was unaware of that. Um, and also, if you have these items, it is not... Don't, what's 
called don't shame yourself for already possessing these items i would just like to put that out there because as much as boycotting is important if you already possess these items it don't feel the absolute urge to just to completely just eradicate of it like you know that is something that you should you should maximize and decision you should make for yourself but don't feel completely urged to just eviscerate everything you have if it's from this brand the second one is puma uh like the sports brand uh soda stream that one kind of shocked me i'm like soda stream the 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 company that makes like carbonated water and stuff and then makes it like fizzy that with the flavors that so yeah soda stream sabra hummus um that that one was that one was really shocking actually uh that oh uh yeah but I, i knew about that one since 2021 though so that one wasn't like shocking now but to just hear it in in the moment was very like jolting to me and then pepsi coke starbucks <sighs> personally i love starbucks i'm not like i have like a starbucks cup on my desk right now and starbucks they their attitude towards unions has been very hostile and that's what they're using that's what they're leveraging palestine as like they're used they're suing their unions for being pro-palestine and just another note on starbucks I saw, the, I saw the video earlier today. It was on TikTok or Twitter. It was one of the two. And it was a video of people ordering in a Starbucks drive-thru and just leaving. And let me just say, this is not the type of protest that you think it is. You may think you are absolutely just like, yeah, I'm totally owning Starbucks. I'm getting that CEO. First of all, you are not owning a CEO if you are like basically punishing a middle wage worker, a middle aged barista who's probably living off that who's no who is living off that salary to force like you're forcing them to make their drink to do their job right. They gotta make their drink. You gotta make your drink that you're not you have no intent to pay for, and then you just leave. That is not the protest or like the the sleigh I guess that you think it is. So um, that's not very, also very decolonization decolonization of you that that is not um that is not that um mcdonald's i found out about this one like earlier this week they were providing free meals to idf forces or the israeli defense forces disney disney man they never cease to amaze me in the worst way possible not only like with their stereotypes from their old movies because oh my oh Ooh, oh my gosh, their their really old Disney stuff was absolutely that was astronomical. But um like just cultural appropriation in Disney, that's like a whole nother po- podcast topic, but Disney that did not come as a shock. Tide though, like Tide like the laundry people like the Tide Pods, they support Israel. That was insane to me because I'm like they're a laundry company. What what <laughs> that ooh, that one was a shocker. But then kind of following along with that, like, I'm going to touch on celebrities for, like, a little bit and specifically figures that have let me down. Um, Malala. <sighs> like, I looked up to Malala for a very long time when I was smaller. I got my million word medal in elementary school. I remember I was in fourth grade and I had just finished reading I Am Malala. It was the Young Readers Edition. And I had felt so inspired that a girl was fighting for women's rights like that. And it was something that I could do. I could grow up to be like that. That was a figure. That was a role model I looked up to. And then to hear about her stance of neutrality, that I think that that was uh, that was the most disappointing thing I think I've seen in a very long time. Because I know her passion. Well, I guess I don't know, you know what I mean? But like the way that I interpreted her book, the way that I interpreted that passion and that it didn't extend to this was just I, I couldn't necessarily fathom that 
Amy Schumer's comments have been, um, uh, her and Noah Snap, they're, they're, they're two peas in a pod. I'll say that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, but those were kind of the celebrities I just want to talk about. I just really was, I think I was just a Malala rant, but I was very just upset by Malala. I really expected something else than that stance of neutrality. But, oh, oh, God, oh, it's just reminded me of President Biden oh. and Kamala Harris's statement on Twitter. So, first of all, I unblocked Biden on Twitter and I kept getting his tweets, like, they kept popping up. But I was like, okay, fine, I just blocked him. And let me just pull up the tweet. It was like, we cannot stand for this. We cannot, like, call it. It was, I was like, um, what? <laughs> Excuse me? And he was, oh, yeah, he was, like, talking about, um, what's it called? What was he, man, what was he talking about? He was talking about not support oh he was talking about supporting israel that we need to stand oh yeah israel has the right to defend itself israel has a right to do this israel has a right to do that what it it, <laughs> it didn't surprise me but i was just like um I, uh, let's just say block hitting that block button was the literal best possible thing i could ever do for like the president specifically but um also, right now, kind of just on, like, a self-care note, I guess, there is a lot going on, and these are heavy topics, and don't feel super prompted to say something on social media if you are not, if you feel like you're not educated enough. Um, you know, go do your own research. There are tons of resources out there. I mean, I spent hours researching how to construct this podcast, like, a few hours ago. I spent, well, a few hours ago I started researching it. I spent a lot of time. I put a lot of time into this, and I encourage you to do the same. Always educate yourself. Education is the power against depression. So, just wanted to throw that out there, and please take care of yourself as well. Please, um, stay grounded. That, I think that's a good way to put it as well. Um... Yeah, and for kind of my closing remarks, I just wanted to once again reiterate, I do not condone anti-Semitism in any of its forms, whether it's violence, a caricature, or just flat out hate speech. I do not condone anti-Semitism. Like there was um the oh the day, the week was it was October eleventh. It was October it was October tenth or eleventh, and I was wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt. If you didn't know, Bernie Sanders is Jewish, right? And I have a Palestinian flag taped to the back of my computer. And there was this group across the room. And there was a Jewish student in there. In that group, who I had known since elementary school. He'd gone to the same elementary school. This other student had turned to me from across the room and went, Oh my God, how do you feel about Jewish people? And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was kind of, ast I was astounded by that comment. And I was just like, well, you know, I don't condone anti-Semitism if that's what you're asking. And I thought the interaction was very weird as well. And also, please be wary of the Canary Mission. Um, they have been doxing so many people for things that they flag as anti-Semitism. Yet again, censorship, recurring theme keeps happening. So just be wary of the Canary Mission. Um, and I would, also like to, I would also like to exclaim for the last time, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And the children of Palestine one day will hear birds instead of bombs one day. So please pray for the people of Palestine and keep advocating. And before I end this, I just want to touch on decolonization real quick. I realized I didn't touch on it earlier. But decolonization is a thing that I've seen a lot of people push for. Like, I just got, <laughs> I've seen so many... Uh, not just girls, but really just anybody who had decolonization or power to the people 
in their bios or who are very much performative in 2020 are now zionists and to me that is literally astronomical like having power to the people in your instagram bio then being a raging zionist at the same time is insane to me because how can you be that many contradictions at once like you are a walking paradox you are a living oxymoron it just does not make sense but i think people's idea of decolonization they're just like well you know if if you look at palestine you probably you probably support indigenous land back movements yeah wow like congratulate wow you oh oh my god i support land back that's just that's insane to me but what does decolonization look like a lot of people don't know that like they just think decolonization can be achieved through mainly peaceful means and i'm i am no way advocating go burn somebody's house down no that 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 is not what i'm saying don't don't twist that please don't don't (laughs) but people have this very clear idea that uh, well, it's mainly liberals, to be honest, but they're just like, you know, all of this change can be accomplished through peaceful means. Look at every single revolution that has occurred in history. Was it ever achieved by peacefully standing outside? By, you know, calling your legislator? Was that ever achieved? No, because there was no incentive. But this, like, radical action needs to be taken. Most times, well, yeah, in order for you know, there to be a consequence or for there to be like real decolonization or, or I guess decolonization is one of the many things that requires an action to be done beforehand. But I think that just that right now is challenging a lot of people's beliefs and how like their support for land back and what it really now that they know that it really means like this is land back. This is, you know, Palestinian existence is resistance because of the the violence that zionists have inflicted and the entire goal of zionism and the planned like eradication of um what's it called of um of palestinians and kind of touching on history too like well i spent the entire thing talking about history but touching back on it one more time um there are many jewish people who are like the jewish voices for peace i've looked at their website many times i pulled some of my resources from like some of my a lot of my data and a lot of my like quotes and history are from their website today and there are so many jews jewish people who are for peace so please take that into consideration and as i mentioned earlier please don't make broad generalizations for one group you know we pointed out when we're talking and we don't like it when for example, like white groups marginalize um, or, you know, make wide stereotypes and generalizations about us. So I don't think we should inflict that on anybody else either. So just wanted to throw that out there and kind of clarify what decolonization means and that this is a form of decolonization and resistance. So yeah, keep advocating for liberation. Last thing, I swear to God, it's the last thing. I just wanted to mention how I think it's so beautiful that marginalized groups are coming together to support palestinians in this because groups such as like indigenous people from here in you know north america people across the world um you know mexicans i've seen my because i'm i'm half mexican half filipino i've seen unity across social media in this struggle unity across minority groups rather than divides because oppression and white supremacy drives minority groups apart to distract them from the larger conflict the larger enemy of white supremacy and i think it's beautiful for marginalized marginalized groups to be supporting each other like this 
So just wanted to mention that, throw that in there. But um, thank you guys for listening, and I will, will not see you. I guess you'll hear me next time. <laughs>